Jesus. And in a day of modern skepticism, it is easy to think that we don't need the resurrection to believe in Christ, that it's superstition and that it's myth and make-believe. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. But amen, it is more than true that Jesus was raised from the dead, that death and sin did not triumph over him, and he was not held in the grave. And so even us, sinful people, who have earned the sentence of death might go free with the hope of resurrection in Christ. Please pray with me. Jesus Christ, you are the word of God made flesh. You dwelt among us. You proclaimed the truth to us and lived the truth to us. You died that we, being united with you, may be dead to sin. And you were raised the dead from the death so that we, being united with you, might be raised to newness of life. O Lord, might you cause that newness of life to be worked out in us in new ways today as we read from your word and study your scripture and are transformed into the image of the invisible God, living out the true purpose of humanity. Lord, rescue us from our sins, even this moment, even those here who do not believe in you, for our faith is not in vain, and we labor with the hope of glory. You were raised from the dead, and so we are not to be pitied, but to rejoice in all things. I ask that you would bless the preaching of this word, that it would be with the power that raises the dead to life and speaks truth into hard hearts. May you be glorified today, Lord, in the preaching and in the rest of the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. You don't know how difficult it is to say good afternoon when the inclination is to say good morning. For those of you who have been up here, you know what I'm saying. But you know what? It is such a blessing to hear the good news that eventually we're going to be in 23 Golf Street and we're going to have morning service and we're going to be able to say, like we're inclined to say, good morning. Huh? So it's, that's a great thing. And thank you so much for those who are doing such great work for us. Um, I, I always, when I have this opportunity, uh, just feel so much compelled to tell you thank you for letting a lay person come up into the pulpit because most churches don't do this, but it's a blessing for me to be able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who changed my life 40-plus years ago. So thank you for this opportunity. I, I do appreciate it. The title of this message is 51 Weeks of Faith. And it's intended to be an encouragement for us as a church because in the upcoming 51 weeks coming off the blessing of last Easter, last Sunday, we have an unbelievable opportunity in this community, in this culture, to stand up with the gospel. 
and make an impact for Christ. And I want to encourage us not to lose one second of opportunity in the 51 weeks. So that is the, the main message that I'm coming with today. Um, do you use your imagination? Do you have a good imagination? Let me challenge you right now to use that imagination and consider what it was like when Jesus Christ was ascended up into the clouds of which Pastor Gary preached last Sunday. What would it be like if you were standing with the disciples? What, you, what would you have seen? What would you have heard? What would you have felt? To prime the pump of your thinking, I'd like to read for you what Luke wrote for us in Acts 1 about that event. He wrote, starting in Acts 1, verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so that's what we're told about the ascension. But use your imagination. What do you think you saw if you were there? Did Jesus just go zip up into heaven or did he whoosh up into heaven? Or was he like a a balloon that the little kid at the park let go that kind of worked its way up and got smaller and smaller as it went up? Did Jesus disappear in that way? And he went into a cloud. Was the cloud a gray cloud or a a bright, puffy cloud? And was it windy? And what was the temperature? And then the two guys in white robes. I think that's kind of, it's not creepy, but it'd be a surprise. And, and, And all of a sudden, Scripture says there's two guys in white robes who were talking. Where did they come from? And how long were they there? And they spoke, but how long did it take from Christ disappearing to then when they started to speak? And then were there more words said, and and how long did they stay there? And you can just believe that there were many more things to think about. But the natural conclusion that we're led to believe and imagine is that this ascension of Jesus Christ, of which Pastor Gary preached so well about on last Sunday, it was an amazing event. It's an absolutely amazing event, the likes of which these people had never seen and would never see again. So how do you think they felt? How do you think it affected them? Clearly, they were affected. Psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health counselors, uh, commonly deal with a diagnosis called clinical depression. And this diagnosis is displayed by malaise and listlessness, loss of energy, loss of drive, loss of purpose, a depression. It has many causes, 
And one of the causes, interestingly, is a big life event. And I'm not saying necessarily a big bad life event. It could be a big good life event that can cause this depression. I remember when I was in college pursuing a professional golf career. And at the age of 18, I won the New England Amateur Championship. It was the first big men's tournament that I won. And I was driving home, and candidly, I was depressed. The wind was out of the sails, and it was just an uncommon feeling. It was not what I was expecting. And to make it worse, I was realizing that it was the achievement of this goal that I had been working for 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 several years that was causing me to be more depressed. At that time in my early life, I learned about the sneakiness of depression. Oftentimes, there's a down that comes after an up from a big event, and we have to be on guard for that. With those disciples in mind, uh, excuse me, so then back to the ascension, following uh, the ascension of Christ. These these disciples had just witnessed an unbelievable um, miracle involving the world's greatest miracle worker, Jesus Christ. It was a major life event indeed. And some of them, if not all of them, assuredly at that point were dazed and confused and maybe even depressed. So the question is, what would they do next? What would they do next? We don't have that recorded, but what would they do next? Fast forward us to April 17th, 2021. It was last Sunday. We as a church body had just enjoyed a great service. Todd had preached on the resurrection. Pastor Gary had preached on the ascension. We were celebrating that event. It had been built up in crescendo fashion by several Sundays before that with preaching on the triumphal entry and the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane and the crucifixion. And we had just then dealt with the resurrection and the ascension, big events in the Christian life. And now, what do we do next? From today and here on, we need to recognize that we are at risk of encountering letdown, that we may have a congregational depression an unintentional slide back to normal. Last week as an usher and deacon, I counted over 80 people in our church service. And of course, it's Easter and a lot of people come on Easter, but we don't have that number today. We don't have that number today. So what do we do next? When we have this unbelievable opportunity to reach out to our community with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot rest on our laurels. We have to move. We have to move forward. We have to move productively. We have to move victoriously. We cannot grow weary and lose heart. But how do we do that as Christians? Okay? How do we do that? We can easily say we walk by faith and not by sight. We can say the just shall live by faith. Sounds good. Isn't that what Christians do? We're people of faith, aren't we? It's just the faith thing, isn't we? The world moves on Duncan, but we Christians move on faith. Huh? Or we could say that 
Uh, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a nice definition from Hebrews 11.1, but it's like picking up jello with a spoon. It's not very tangible. Or we could say that for by grace are ye saved through faith. Okay, nice theology. But again, not very tangible. Or we could say, without faith, it is impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And of course, we want to please God. But again, what is the faith that we have to apply? How do we do that? We know that faith distinguishes us as Christians, but how does it guide us? How does our faith guide us? That is the enormous, inescapable question that I want to deal with today. We need to know how our faith will guide us so that we will not grow weary and lose heart in our ministry in the upcoming 51 weeks if we want God to bless us. If we choose to neglect this question, I believe we won't achieve the potential that we have right at our fingertips. And in this rapidly declining culture, we don't have that luxury. There are many things that we can do, and among them is to get Golf Street up and running. We need to be serious and practical and intentional in every ministry effort that every one of us is involved in to make this happen. And we need to keep our faith focused on God so that we will not become depressed and listless and grow weary and lose heart. So how do we do that? Well, I believe, as always, that Scripture gives us information and guidance, which is thumbs up from Scripture. Our t- the, the text for today is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we are given guidance. So just let me read that with you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. To walk well by faith so that we do not grow weary and lose heart, we need to do three things as we're taught in this scripture. We need to deal with our sin, we need to run with perseverance, and we need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to share with you today. So first of all, let's look at sin. We need to deal with our sin. Hebrews 12.1 says... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, we're sinners. We just know that. We know that we um, do that because it's part of our nature. There is none who does good, no, not one. And though we know that we're saved by grace through faith, and though we know that all our sins are cast away as far as the east is from the west, and though we know that Jesus' blood 100% cleanses us from our sin, and though we know that we're new creatures in Christ, the old is past, the new has come, and though we know that the gift of eternal life also brings with it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
who guides us, we also sadly know that we still sin. Effectively, we're more than conquerors in Christ, but practically, we're still sinners. And so we know that by acts of commission and omission, we are going to make bad choices, and those choices always have consequences. But it's not that we're not in good company. We look at Moses, who struck the rock twice at Meribah and was prohibited from going into the promised land. We look at David, who looked a little bit too long at Bathsheba and the besetting problem of lust that takes down men took him down too. We know there's Solomon, who did so many great things and was part of so much success, but he too had a woman issue, and that took him down and kept him from having his ultimate impact or good impact on history. And we know Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, but it was through that event that Jesus taught us, that even the sinner can be restored. Our sin hinders us in our intended service of God. It hampers us. It might even take us down, and temporarily it might even take us out. Though we aspire to be the valedictorian in our class of sanctification, we know that we're not going to have true success until we're taken up into glory, because it's in heaven that there's no sin We are still down here where there's sin. And so the bottom line is that we have to deal with it. Proverbs 14.34 tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Any people means any people, any family, any business, any community, any nation, and any group of believers in a church. Sin brings disgrace. If we would prefer the blessings of God as opposed to the curses and the disgraces, then we need to deal with our sin. Thankfully, our gracious and merciful Lord has given us a way to process our way through this sin problem, and it's found in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In this verse, the word confess means to speak the same. In other words, pursuant to this verse, to confess our sins is simply to tell God what he already knows, to tell God the same thing that he already knows. We speak the same to him. If we are honest and upfront with God in this way, then his promise to us is that he will forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is a phenomenal promise, considering that the primary effect of our sin is that it separates us from God and denies us of that sweet fellowship that the blood of the cross won for us. I have heard the interesting question posed, if God seems far away, who moved? You ever heard that question? If God seems far away, who moved? Did God move? No. God tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And when we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we become adopted as a child of God. Sinning doesn't unchild us. We don't lose our salvation by sinning, and it doesn't reverse the adoption process, which by its very definition can't be reversed. Adoption is permanent. But sin does separate and act as a wedge or a barrier between us and the Father. The more sin, the further the Father seems to be away from us. But it is us who is the one who moves, not the Father. 
so it's necessary for us to confess that sin and, in a sense, clear away the dead wood that keeps us from that sweet fellowship that we, that we desire. When we do confess our sin, we are brought closer to God. And when we're closer to God, we can trust him more. And when we are trusting him more, we can move out in faith more productively. As I noted to you previously, without faith it is impossible to please him, but with faith everything is possible. There is nothing too hard for God, and he can do amazing things through us if we just move forward in faith. We must deal with our sin. If our involvement at 23 Golf Street is based upon individual efforts, without a component of trusting God this way, we are going to fail. Our efforts at 23 Golf Street will be dismal indeed. But if we deal with our sin and draw tight to God, then God will supply all our needs and nothing will be impossible for God to do through us and for us. This is the place I hope all of us want to be in a tight, trusting relationship with the Creator God. Just think how special that will be. Consider the character Christian in the famous John Bunyan allegorical classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian was finally able to get rid of his knapsack of sinfulness, he felt the burden of sin lifted, and he was able to then move on by faith to the celestial city. We need to hear the words of Bunyan to really get the full flavor of how sin is a burden. This is from the third chapter. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall that was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent water down his cheeks. Isn't that great, the way it was written? Second most popular book in the world to the Bible. Sin has a burden. It hinders us. It hampers us. It holds us back from realizing the blessings that God can provide for us. If we want to stay excited about the ministry that God has given us, if we want to keep going forward and not grow weary and lose heart, then we need to continually confess our sins to God. We should never let God slip away from us in this way. We should always desire to be connected to the heart of God because this is where we find our direction and strength. The next 51 weeks have enormous potential for us, brothers and sisters. 
and we can move and go forward and have historic and positive results if we simply are concerned about our pride and anger and disrespect and gospel, a gossip and slander and loose words and coveting and slothfulness and gluttony and dissension. Every sinful behavior and every attitude that's wrong, we need to cast off. God just looks at all sin. Even small sin is bad. It could be murder or it could be at loose, loose words that uncomplimentarily slip out of our mouth. God needs all of that confessed. We need all of that confessed. If we do this consistently, individually and as a church, we will be a group of believers wonderfully positioned to be used in an enormous, mighty way by God. Let me share some final thoughts regarding sin, and I know it's a touchy subject. We don't often talk about it. We don't often preach about it. But we need to look at it because in God's economy, if we want to move forward productively in faith, we need to deal with it. Now, there is no present need for me to deal with my sins or your sins personally. So you don't have to creep out on me. You can relax, okay? Let me talk about sin in a general sense. General rule. God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. Our motivating desire as individuals and as a church should be to be blessed by God through obedience because sin brings trouble. Proverbs 13.21 says, Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Okay? The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we see how God used Moses to prepare the people to occupy the promised land. The blessings would be proclaimed from Mount Gerizim, and the curses would be proclaimed from Mount Ebal. The people needed to know how God would deal with them. If they faithfully heard and followed the voice of God and the commandments of God, he would bless them abundantly. But if they did not hear the word of God and did not follow the commandments of God, then innumerable curses would overtake them. For time purposes, I will not read from Deuteronomy 28, but I commend it to your attention. Because in Deuteronomy 28, there is a litany of things that God will do for those if the people were disobedient. And it was much more than a mere pebble in their sandal. It was every facet of their lives would be affected if they were disobedient. And conversely, if they were obedient, every facet of their lives would be blessed. But Moses needed to put these people on notice that sin brings failure, sin brings disgrace, sin brings cursing. The lesson God wanted his people to know is don't be disobedient. Deal with sin. Sin has horrible consequences. If we want to have a fruitful ministry at 23 Golf Street and thereafter, we simply need to deal with our sin. I won't say much more on that. If we don't, our faith will be undermined and we may not be able to pursue all the things that God has laid out for us, we will lose heart in our ministry and grow weary. Second point that Hebrews 12 teaches us is that we must run with perseverance. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It seems from Paul's writing in the epistles 
that he was very comfortable using the metaphor of running a race to discuss and describe the Christian life. It gives us a sense of what living by faith is all about. He wrote to Timothy and said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He wrote to the Corinthians, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And he wrote to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, because like him in his death, and being like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews, it could have been Paul, we're not quite sure, tells us more clearly how we should run so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. And that is to run with perseverance. With perseverance. The Greek word off of which perseverance is translated is the Greek word hupomoni. It means patient endurance, the quality that does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. It means persisting in or remaining constant to a purpose, idea, or task in the face of obstacles. And I would suggest to you that the meat of that definition really comes forward when we look at the last phrase, in the face of obstacles. Running with perseverance is not for sissies. Apparently, if we want to run in such, the way, in such a way that we won't grow weary and lose heart, we need to be ready to encounter lots of challenges and lots of opposition, at least some very significant bumps in the road. Presently, we have yet to receive our building permit for the build-out at 23 Golf Street, but great thanks to those in the committee, brothers and sisters, what great news even today. We've made progress. But forewarned is forearmed. Ain't going to be easy. We're going to encounter problems. It's not going to go smoothly. My prayers and greatest thanks go to the building committee for all that they've done and certainly those who have been involved in the design and the application process so far. It's a thankless and frustrating task. We have parking issues. Blessings to Seth for the work that's, that he's done. We have site issues and structural issues. We have a lot of codes and safety regulations to convert that manufacturing use into an assembly use. The rule of thumb is that construction always takes longer and costs more than you think. We need to persevere. This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. Now, if you're a Boston Marathon groupie, an enthusiast as I am, then you'll know really the cost of running that race, of completing that race. Twenty years ago when I had <clears throat> younger legs, I tried to qualify and I didn't. And that's a long story and I won't share it with you. So I've had to enjoy the race vicariously through my brother Dave, my older brother Dave, who had been a marathoner and for a stretch of 15 or so years did a lot of running and he ran in the Boston Marathon 
about 10 times from the late 90s through the early 2000s. It's a test of endurance and perseverance. Dave would come out to our house from Denver where he lived, and he'd stay with us. And on the morning of the race, I would drive him early to Hopkinton, where the race starts. And then I would drop him off, and because of my knowledge of the course, I would zip into Boston and park. And then I would go to the corner of Commonwealth Ave and Hereford Street because it's near the end of the race, and they would come down a gentle slope of Commonwealth Ave and hit Hereford Street and then go about 200 yards in Hereford Street and then take a left down Boylston Street to the finish and sprint to the finish. And so knowing my brother's projected time, I would know when he would be coming. I would get there early. I'd be right up. No one was around there because the runners hadn't started coming, so me and the police and the stanchions, I'd be right up front. And I had a deal with him that when he came down this last part of the race, might have been two people in the group with bobbing heads coming down, you know, maybe three, but our deal was he would go way to the left, and he'd come down, and so I would be able to pick him up, and I'd get the photo ops, and he'd run in front of me, and he'd do this, and I'd take the photo, and he would run. Then I would run to the finish line or the finish area, the greeting area, and um, try to connect with him. I would pick him up. Sometimes I'd have to scoop him up. But in the, in the 10 years that I went to the Boston Marathon that way, I witnessed thousands upon thousands of runners. And they were people who were at the 26-mile mark of their ordeal demonstrating to me perseverance. They had persevered from the starting line. They had persevered from their training. The whole marathon event was an unbelievable display of perseverance. It was very awe-inspiring for me. And just from my inside knowledge of my brother's training, I was aware of the unbelievable commitment that it took for every runner to finish that race. For about the 15 years of my brother's marathoning career, he ran, on the average, 60 to 80 miles a week. It's a lot of miles, and think about that. In a year, on average, that would make 3,640 miles. Over the span of his 15-year marathoning career, that's about 55,000 miles. If you consider that the circumference of the world at the equator is 24,901 miles, he roughly ran around the world twice. That's just the stupid distance. (laughs) Those are marathoners. But it's the result of perseverance of persisting in or remaining constant to a purpose, idea, or task in the face of obstacles. What I want for us to take away from that is this. The most important thing to consider when remembering or looking at this perseverance factor in a race is that it starts with one single step, and then there's another step, and then there's another step, and then there's another step. It is not that difficult to take the first stride. Taking that stride is easy, and most of us can do it. And so that considering a tough, long race like the Boston Marathon really shouldn't scare us all off uh, and, and consider it too daunting, certainly if we consider it in this light, one step at a time. So let's consider the next 51 weeks for us. 
Let's consider 23 Gulf Street. Though there are many tasks ahead of us at this location, we can knock them off one day at a time, one task at a time. We can do it. If we purpose to persevere in this way, our faith will be productive and we will not grow weary and lose heart. Finally, so that our faith will be productive, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to fully appreciate who Jesus is. We need to fully understand what he's done for us. And we need to fix our eyes with laser focus on him continually. For most of us, if not all of us, it doesn't take a whole lot of prompting to cause us to recognize that this Jesus who we hold up is unique in all of history. There is no one like him. He, can, it is, he is unique, and it can be said that history is actually his story, and there aren't many people who can claim that. He is God. He's part of the Trinity. He is the creator and sustainer of us and of the whole world around us. He is the Messiah, the anointed Savior. He is the fulfillment of countless Old Testament prophecies, and only one person in all of history can do that. He is the Redeemer who purchased us with his blood. He is the great physician who cured so many around him at his time and cures us even today. He's the gentle shepherd who guides us and cares for us and leads us. He is the lawgiver and judge who balances mercy and justice in our world. He is the provider who meets all of our needs. He is the ransomer who pays a price that we are unable to pay that we might have eternal life. He is the reconciler who brings peace between the creator and the wayward creation. He is our substitute who came to earth and stood in our place to pay for our sin. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign now and forevermore. Last week, Pastor Gary preached on the ascension of Jesus Christ, that not only was Christ risen from the grave, as Todd preached, but that he was also raised up to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Jesus is extraordinary. Our Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. Do we think of him every day? Do we think of him continually in all that we do? Can we fix our eyes on this Jesus as the author and perfecter and encourager of our faith so that we won't grow weary and lose heart? If we can do this, it will distinguish our lives and it will distinguish the, the, the ministry of this church in the upcoming 51 weeks. It will help us individually and as a church to push into the spring and into the summer and into the fall with better purpose and better energy this needs to be a priority for us in this church. Maybe for help in this regard, we need to consider Stephen, who was a hero of the early church. Stephen, as described in Acts 6, was a man of good repute, full of faith and grace and power and the Holy Spirit. And he did great wonders and signs among the people. In Acts 7 we learn that he persevered in Christ 
to the very end. And his eyes were fixed on the resurrected, ascended Christ till the very end. He spoke out boldly for the gospel and his witness for the church got him in trouble. It rankled the Jewish leaders of his time and the Jewish council brought him before them and brought false charges against Stephen. And so in Acts 7, we review his defense, unbelievable defense, where he cataloged where he was then in light of the context of all the patriarchs from Abraham all the way up to Jesus. And at the conclusion of his defense, it can clearly be seen that his eyes, in fact, were fixed on the ascended Jesus and that he acted in a faith that did not allow him to lose heart, that type of faith that we should aspire to have. And so toward the end of Acts 7 at verse 54, and let me read this for you, we see the Jewish leaders now getting on him after he's just completed his long defense. At verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they, the Jewish leaders, they, the Jewish leaders, were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This ascended Jesus. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen had his eyes fixed on Jesus, on the ascended Jesus. It was for Stephen the anchor of his faith. Because of this, he did not grow weary and faint-hearted, and he persevered till his last breath. And so should we. And so should we. How will we act in the next 51 weeks? Will we be overcome by sneaky depression after a big Easter Sunday service last week? Or will we launch out in productive faith and not grow weary and lose heart? We must deal with our sin and we must persevere through every challenge and we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus And then I believe we will be blessed by God. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to use your imagination. And as we close, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination again. Imagine how it will be when we are finally worshiping at 23 Golf Street. Imagine every one of our purchased chairs fully occupied. Imagine so many people coming to the new church that we have to institute a second service where all the chairs will be full again. Imagine live streaming and broadcasting the church services to shut-ins and people who can't attend in person because we're overflowing. Imagine 20 or more infants and toddlers to care for during this Sunday worship service times 20. 
Imagine a common practice of fellowship potluck meals after Sunday service for 200 or more people. Imagine a youth group with 75 members or more. Imagine Bible studies or meetings at the church every night of the week. Imagine having to purchase neighboring properties to make room for more parking for the growing church. Imagine considering planting satellite or daughter churches in communities around us because we have simply outgrown 23 Gulf Street. For some of you, I might have just scratched the chalkboard. For others, your heart may be warmed and you may be jumping out of your skin with excitement and expectation. I know you, brothers and sisters, and I believe that there are more of you in the latter group than the former group, and I'm thankful for that. And why? Because we serve an enormous God. We're Christians. We're people of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. We serve an awesome God who can use common, ordinary people like us to do uncommon, extraordinary things that will change the world. Will the next 51 weeks be great for Sovereign Grace Chapel? I pray that we will be shocked. I pray that we will be surprised. I pray that we will be amazed at how God will use us if we simply move forward in faith, trusting him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's all of you not really of us. You've drawn us to the place of the cross for salvation. You've filled us with your spirit who guides us even into your word that we might through it learn of you that you are an awesome God who we can trust. And so we trust you for all of this in the next 51 weeks. Do great things, Lord, in our midst cause us to praise you and know that it is all of you. Be glorified in all, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.